Good morning, good morning. It's nice to see everybody. It's good to see you all here. Can I get a good morning back? Oh, I love it when I have to force people to be nice to me. <laughs> no, it's good to see you all this morning. Hey, um, in, in a couple of minutes, um, I'm going to do, some, when, we get, when we get ready to do the greeting, here's what I'm going to invite you all to do, because we got all these empty seats up front, and you all are acting like Methodists, which is really strange for an 11-11 crowd to act like Methodists. But <laughs> in, in, in the way that you're doing it, um, I want you all to move forward one row. So after you uh, greet each other, just step forward one row. And uh, that way our last minute folks can come on in and be in the back. And also our camera will be looking ahead and seeing actually people here. Uh, and so I'm going to invite you all to do that um, after we do our greeting time. Welcome online, too. We're glad to see you all watching online with us this morning. So, for you online that are visiting, we actually get a ton of folks watching online. I am uh, Tom McDermott. I'm the, the pastor of this community. Glad to see you all here this morning. I see a few visitors with us, one or two for the first time, and then some others for the third, fourth, fifth, or second, or twentieth time. And I want you to take a moment to register your attendance while I'm talking here. A couple of quick things. First of all, we need folks to volunteer to be our readers up here. And I can always just call you and email you, but don't make us do that because it's all that extra effort when all you have to do is just scan that little code on the back of your bulletin and then sign up on a date you want to sign up on. And then you can start filling that in for us and that'd be a huge help because we like seeing other people up here instead of me all the time. So... Um, I, know you, I know that's true what you would like to see too, so please do that. We'd love to have your help for that. Also, love to have your help in the back in helping set up. Avonel does such a lot of good work, and we appreciate so much what you do, Avonel. She's going to be out next weekend. We've got people to fill, but from time to time this summer, we'll have people out, and we would love to have your help back there, so you can also sign up for that as well as for other things like the Taste Project. We have new people every week. We have someone new that's actually part of our community that's showing up at the Taste Project. It is such a cool thing, and I'm so proud of our community for doing that. Okay, a uh, couple of other things that I might be forgetting. Can you think of anything, Brad? Am I forgetting? Uh, it's Jack's birthday tomorrow. It's Jack's birthday. Where's Jack? Jack's birthday tomorrow. Happy birthday, Jack. Yep. Which reminds me... You'll notice uh, that those guys do so much work back there with the AV team and help setting up here to get the band all ready and getting us all ready for online stuff as well. And they just kind of keep slaving away at it and making it work. And we really appreciate all of that because it's an improvisational thing from week to week because you'll notice we're missing a screen today. So the cables weren't working for that screen. So we just moved it out of the way and moved this thing over a little bit, which hopefully you all will be able to see for the words. Otherwise, it's on your bulletins and you can follow along there, but not the lyrics. You'll have to look up here or just make it up and nobody will know the difference. So uh, a couple of things real quick as we get ready to get into this, into today's thoughts. Uh, last week, last week we're in this new series that I'm talking about and I want to set it up for you because I particularly chose, Brad and I particularly chose music today that's a little bit awkward. <laughs> and it's because I want to introduce the, sub the subject in that way. So last week, we're in this thing we're calling the Uncertain Tour, and I'm calling it Part Deux because we've been through this before, but now we're looking at it in a little different way, a little more specifically. And so um, last week was unknowing is most intimate, this idea that that space of unknowing when we're in the midst of rethinking our faith or, or rethinking sort of central ideas we used to understand, and now we're not so sure, we got questions. We're in that unknown liminal space, or whether we're facing a problem and we don't know how, what the next step is, or whether we're facing some kind of conflict in a relationship, we're always kind of at that liminal place of the kind of like a threshold. Do we move into it? Do we run from it? And our typical default is always flight, fright, flight, uh, fight, or freeze, and so we're thinking of other ways in which entering into that space becomes intimate. Because that is actually where resurrection takes place. That's actually where transformation takes place, is when we enter into these unknown spaces. So that was last week. And this week, I want to talk to you about something else, which is this idea of what is truth and what is the truth about sin. So today, I'm going to talk about sin. Come on, I never talk about sin in here. So we're going to talk about sin. Okay, so, um, but we're going to talk about the truth of sin. So it's going to be interesting. And the way that we're going to get there is that we're going to get there by, raising a, by introducing the question at the first, with the first song. We're going to introduce the question. And I want you to memorize these, these four little things here. The second song is going to transcend the question. 
The third song is going to insult the question. And then the fourth song, hopefully, will bring it all together <laughs> at the end. So just kind of keep that in mind as we move through this. All right? First one's going to raise the question. Second one's going to transcend the question. Third one's going to insult the question. And the fourth one, hopefully, will make sense and bring it all together. So I want to tell you one little quick anecdote because it's part of one of the songs you'll hear a little bit later on. There's an ancient story. It goes way back to a bunch of Native American traditions. It goes back even further than that to Hindu traditions. But I heard it as a story that happened to William James, the founder of, of sort of the modern psychology movement. He was giving a lecture on the solar system, on the cosmos, and he was kind of giving a cosmic understanding of how everything works together, and then and, and how we're not the center of it all, but we're a part of it all. And after he finished, a woman came up to him. It was an older woman. She was a little bit frail. She kind of walked up there with a cane, and she looked at him, and she said, Dr. James, this was back in the early 1900s, Dr. James, I don't think you have it right. It was very clever. Your stories were very clever, but I don't think you have it quite right. You see, the way in which things became, the things that happened is the fact that the earth is in fact flat and it sits on the back of a turtle. And he looked at the woman and he said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. She said, no, it is quite true. And he said, well, then wait a minute. If there's no gravity holding this thing in the midst of everything. And she says, no, 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 that's clever and that's fun, but that's not it. It's sitting on a turtle. And he said, well, ma'am, what is holding up the turtle? It's another turtle, Dr. James. To which he said, and below that, and then she looked at him and said, it's no use. It's turtles all the way down. Good to have you here this morning. God's golden show. 
The welcome candle is about to be lit, I think. Push it, and then you click it. There you go. And it's a welding torch. Okay, the welcome candle has been lit, signifying that all are welcome here. So please join me in singing our welcome, or saying our welcome. <laughs> come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving, it doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. E even if you have broken your vows a thousand times, come yet again. 11, it's time to stand and sing song number two. This is the transcendent, transcendent song, if you will. It's also the time to bring your offering on up to the table. And it's reggae, look out. Sing with us, would you please? work, y'all. Would y'all take a moment and offer one another a sign of peace, please?
Don't forget when you're done offering each other a sign of peace. You'll be coming up one row closer than you were, if you dare. Good morning. Good morning. So good to be here with you. Just um, as we, before we move into our time of Kairos, I just want to remind everyone that this coming Thursday at 7 o'clock in the chapel, I believe that's May 11th, um, at 7 o'clock in the chapel, we'll be having a special, quiet, and reflective time in preparation for Mother's Day for those who uh, may find Mother's Day to be a very difficult time. And that is particularly for those who have um, struggled with infertility, who have, done, who have been on the, adopt, the journey of adoption, for those whose children may have died. Um, this is a time for Mother's Day as a day of celebration for many. It is also an incredibly difficult day for many. And so we live in the part of a community that recognizes that and holds space for that. So if you or someone you love or care for um, could fall into that um, time um, and would like some extra support, it is a, a time of the service is a time of candlelight, of music, of reflection, and um, we also have communion. So we would invite you to come to that this Thursday, 7 o'clock in the chapel. All right. Um, as we begin to take a deep breath together and begin our time of being present here in this moment, um, we are also mindful of the events that happened yesterday and the events that can happen anywhere, it seems. I'm preparing to go back to Uvalde to be with the families of the 21 from the Robb Elementary massacre. And now we are here in the midst of one that happened at a shopping mall yesterday. It is madness. And it is time that we stand up and we make our verses heard and that we work for a change so that we can live in a place where there is truly peace and where we do not have to be scared to go to the grocery store to send our kids to school or to go buy something at a shopping mall. So let us take these moments. If you're comfortable, close your eyes. If not, that's okay. But let us breathe together and remember the community that we are called to be and how we can help that community grow outside of this room. May we breathe together.
a holy one, sometimes the words fall short, and sometimes there seem to be no words, but other times there are a lot of words, words that must be spoken, words that must be shared, words that must work and speak for justice, because for so long, it seems we have been too quiet. So may there be righteous anger. May the work of justice not just flow through our minds and our hearts, but it may it come out of our mouths so that we might speak louder and work more fully. So that we might come together and stop these things that are happening around us and be present in the midst of all that is happening. May we listen more intently to one another. May we value one another's being over objects that can do harm. And when we look into one another's eyes, may we find that we are looking into the eyes of our own so that we see that we are all connected. We are not separate. We are not them or those, but we are one and we are us. May we find that the ground of our being is here in our midst and may we work for peace and for justice to prevail. We offer all these things in the name of the one who is the ground of our being, who is within us and around us. We pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning is called The Walk to Emmaus. It is one of the experiences of the spirit of the living Christ after the resurrection. Listen now for these words found in Luke 30, 24, 13 through 35. That same day, two of the disciples were making their way to the village called Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, discussing all that had happened as they went. While they were discussing these things, Jesus approached and began to walk along with them, but they didn't recognize him. He asked them, what are you two discussing? They stopped and looked sad one of them said, one of them, Colopus by name, asking, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened these past few days? Jesus said to them, what things? They said, about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, powerful in word and deed in the eyes of God and all the people. How our chief priests and leaders delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We were hoping that he was the one who would set Israel free. And besides all this today, the third day since these things happened, some women of our group have just brought us some astonishing news. They were at the tomb before dawn and didn't find the body. They returned and informed us that they had seen a vision of angels who declared that Jesus was alive. 
Some of our number went to the tomb and found it to be just as the women had said, but they didn't find Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, What little sense you have. Didn't the Messiah say, have to undergo all these to enter into glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them every passage of scripture which referred to the Messiah. By now, they were near the village that they were going to, and Jesus appeared to be going further. But they said eagerly, stay with us, it's nearly evening. The day is practically over. So he went in and stayed with them. After sitting down with them to eat, he took bread, said the blessing, then broke it and began to distribute it to them. And when their eyes were opened and they recognized the man to be Jesus, who then immediately vanished from their sight. They said to one another, weren't our hearts burning inside us as this one talked to us on the road and explained the scripture to us? They got up immediately and returned to Jerusalem where they found the 11 and the rest of the company assembled. Then the travelers recounted what had happened on the road and how they had come to know Jesus in the breaking of bread. The word of God for the people of God. I seen Jesus play with flames in the lake of fire that I was standing in. Met the devil in sin, spent nine months inside the lion's den. Met Booty at another time. He showed me the glow and light within But I swear that God is there Every time I glare into the eyes of my best friend Says my son, it's all been done Someday you're gonna wake up old and red. So go on and have some fun Showing warmth to everyone You meet and greet and cheat along the way There's a gateway in our minds That leads somewhere up there Far beyond this way We're reptile aliens made of light Cut you open, pull out all your pain Tell me how you make a leak Something that we all make it our brain Some say you might go crazy Then again, it might make you go sane Every time I take a look Inside that old fabled book I'm blinded and reminded of Pain caused by some old man in the sky Religion and philosophy Meditation, deeper meaning They all change the way I see But love's the only thing that saved my life So don't waste your mind on nursery rhymes And fairy tales of blood and wine Turtles all the way down the line So do each their own at home To Elsevier and the souls we phone To and through the myth that We all call space and time Yeah, so we don't typically do too much country in here, and uh, that Sturgill Simpson song seemed like an interesting way to sort of uh, 
to speak about the problem, to talk about it like fairy tales and nursery rhymes. That's really what the story that uh, Kay just read, just another fairy tale, another nursery rhyme. That's what faith is, you know, our, our, our faith story. And perhaps, perhaps a lot of people see it that way. Um, thank you, Kay, for reading that text. That's a long text. And I tried to think about a way to summarize it and maybe just to include the highlights. And then I thought, nah, let the whole story be told because I also wanted to share with you Mark's perspective, the Gospel of Mark, on, the whole, on that same story, which is interesting. Here's how Mark put it toward the end of his Gospel. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. They returned and reported it to the rest, but no one believed them either. That's Mark's version. So I want to share with you a real quick story, and then a couple, then I'm going to like just three points real fast, um, hopefully real fast. But um, when my wife and I had gone to Ireland for the first time, my father being born in Ireland, one of the things that my I wanted to experience, and Linda too, she, we wanted to kind of find something out about the McDermott family. My father was born in Dublin. My grandmother and grandfather lived in Dublin in Ross Common, which is over on the west side, Dublin on the east side. And, and so we traveled around Ireland for about two weeks, and in all the travels, you know, everywhere we went, people would say, oh, McDermott, no. McDermott's a fine name, sure. Sure, now, everyone, everyone knows the McDermott's. And I said, well, can you introduce me to some of them? And, of course, we never found anything specific about McDermott's until we got to Dublin, and we were staying at a bed and breakfast, and we were the day before we had to return back over to Shannon, which, for some of you that know or don't know, is on the western coast. Shannon's on the western side, out, kind of out in the country. And so we were going to drive across the country, get back to, Ireland, uh, back to uh, Shannon, and then fly back to the States. But we were there that morning, on our last day, early in the morning, talking to the hostess, the Banatee, as she's called, in, in, uh, in, in Dublin. And she said, well, no, you're in McDermott, and you're heading home. I suppose you had a fine trip. And we said, well, yeah, we did. She said, well, did you ever go to, Ros to Roscommon and to Loch Lee? And we said, Loch Lee? We didn't ever go to Loch Lee. What's that? She says, it's a lake, you know. I said, no, I know Loch is a lake, but what's Loch Lee? She says, well... You have to go. And I said, well, we're leaving. She says, oh, but it's on your way. It's right there outside of Roscommon. She says, it's on the way to Shannon. You'll find it's a beautiful park, a lovely park, beautiful lake. If you, if you wait there just long enough, you'll find something out about your, your family, about the McDermott's that you never knew before. And I thought, well, what a wonderful idea to go to, to the island, I mean, to the, to the lake and see this, whatever it was that we were supposed to see. So we, we traveled, and it was early in the morning, and there was a bit of a fog as we moved further into the mountains, heading westward. And as we got to Loch Ree, there was a lane that, that drove down through these beautiful trees, and, and we made our way down. It was pretty desolate. There was nobody there. The fog was a little bit thick. And then we pulled in the parking lot, and as we pulled in the parking lot, the fog began to lift. And as the fog began to lift, we could see a sort of a lodge to one side of the parking lot, a big, beautiful stone lodge with some glass. And, and then as it lifted a little further, we could see the lake starting to appear. And then as the fog lifted a little bit further, we saw an island in the middle of the lake. And sitting in the middle of the island was a castle, just an old castle with towers sticking up just by itself there in the lake. And we thought, well, that's amazing. That's a really beautiful spot. So we went around looking for somebody. And there was nobody there. The place appeared not to be open. We didn't know if it was closed or if it just hadn't opened yet because it was early in the morning. But one of the things I did notice was that there was a little dock with a little boathouse on the end. And at the end of the dock, there were a couple of skiffs tied up, a couple of little canoes of sorts. And, and they had paddles in them. And so I looked at my wife. I said, Linda, you know, why don't we just paddle out to that island, do a little exploring? And she said, well, Tom, we should really wait for somebody to do this. Before. I mean, how do we know we shouldn't pay something? And I pushed Linda into the boat and I said, we'll pay when we get back. And so we paddled out across the lake to this, to this island. It's about 100 yards out there, and it's a beautiful island, not very large, and about twice the size of this room. And in the middle of it was this old ruins of a castle. So we, we looked at the castle for a little while and then uh, picked up a few little trinkets, little stones that we saw that looked like stones from the castle. And, and then we got back in the boat and we paddled back. We noticed people had started pulling in the parking lot by then. Been, maybe about an hour had passed. And as we got over there, there was a man standing at the end of the dock. And he kind of a short, bandy-legged man with ruddy complexion, you know, classic sort of Irish-looking fella. And he was scowling. And as we pulled the boat up to the dock, he says, well, what do you think you're doing? And I said, well, we're sorry. We didn't know anybody was here. And he says, well, did you even bother to look? And we said, well, we thought we did. And he says, well, you don't think much, do you? And already Linda said, you're in trouble. <laughs> and I said, look, we, we just were going to take the boat and we, we were just going to borrow it. He says, you were going to steal it. 
And I said, well, where would we take it? He says, well, I was asking myself the same question. And I, then he, I could see I wasn't getting anywhere with him, so I looked at him. I said, it was really my wife's idea in the first place. <laughs> I told her we should wait, but I didn't want to make her upset, and so we went over there. And I, then I tried to explain that we'd been told there was something here about the McDermott's that we were supposed to see or find out about, and we didn't know anything about it. And the man looked at me and says, you had a McDermott. And I said, I am. He says, well, that explains a lot. And already I'm thinking to myself, what have I stepped into? And he says, I suppose you don't know why you're here. And I said, well, no, I just told you. And he says, no, 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 you're here for another reason. And I'll, I'll tell you in just a minute if you want to wait, if you have the patience for it. And so we said, well, we're going to wait. You know, we've, got, we've been doing this all week long, two weeks looking for something. So we sat there on the little post waiting. And he tied up and he went and helped some other customers. Then he came back and he said, one of the finest of the McDermott's grew up right outside of Ross Common in this area. His name was Seamus McDermott. He was a good example of a fine entrepreneurial Irishman. He was a pickpocket. <laughs> Made his life picking pockets and no one could best him. He was the finest pickpocket in all of the land. And he would stand right outside the square at, 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 at Ross Common and he would pick pockets right and left. And he found himself doing so well that he went to Dublin and tried his play, uh, applied his trade there. And he was picking pockets one day when Seamus felt his own pocket being picked. And when he looked up, what did he see but a beautiful red-headed woman walking away from him with his own pocketbook in her hand. So he chased her down. And meanwhile, my wife and I are just smiling, loving the story. And he says, well, he chased her down. And he says, young lady, how is it that you just picked my pocket when I'm the finest pickpocket in all of Ireland? And she smiled back at him and she said, well, it's simple, you're not. Well, now, Seamus, like any Irishman, the fellow told us, he said, Seamus, like any good Irishman, might have turned away and saved what little pride he had left. But Seamus was an entrepreneur. He looked at the young woman, asked her her name. She said her name was Mary. He said, well, if the two of us came together in matrimony, think of the children we'd have. We could raise a whole race of pickpockets. <laughs> and she thought the idea was a fine idea, so the two of them were married. The midwife who was there to help in the delivery walked into the side room where Seamus had been waiting. The fellow looked at us. He said, Seamus was sad because the nurse, the midwife, she had a very solemn look on her face. She said, Seamus, I'm sorry for you, and then ushered him to come into the room. When he came into the room, there he was Mary, his wife, and there was their little baby all wrapped up. But when he pulled back the little claws off of the baby's hands, the baby's arms were frozen up stiff against his chest. And every time Seamus went to move the arms, they looked like they were locked in place, like that was the way the baby was going to be. It was born that way. And, 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 the, and the priest that came into the room and the, and the midwife said, oh, we're so sorry for you. And Seamus was thinking, there goes my whole future right there. And that's when the priest smiled at Seamus because she, the priest knew Seamus. He says, I think what the baby needs is an incentive. And he pulled out of his pocket a pocket watch. And he began to move the pocket watch back and forth, and it was just the trick. Because didn't the baby's eyes light up and follow the pendulum swinging back and forth? And didn't the arms start to loosen up and the hands start to reach away and out towards the glowing object of desire when suddenly the little baby opened up his hand, and that's when the midwife's ring fell to the ground. <laughs> the midwife's ring. It was the, when delivery of the midwife's, yeah. I looked at the guy and I said, you told me the whole story just to get to that point? And he says, oh, you don't know the McDermott's. Oh, they're not pickpockets, now they're advertisers and lawyers. <laughs> but then I understood the whole point of his joke because as we were walking away and he started to go back to his business, he said, and by the way, Mr. McDermott, some of them are boat thieves. <laughs> I told my father this story years later. The, my father, many of you know, was... Uh, from, and from Ireland, but we, my parents divorced young. It was a very difficult relationship. There was a lot of abuse and a lot of dysfunction, a lot of alcoholism and stuff, and even, even gambling as such. But one of the things that I didn't know, of course, was about my father's history, and I heard this bizarre story, and I told him one day when I was see, seeing him down in Houston, and he started laughing out loud. And I said, what's so funny? He says, your grandfather had a reputation for stealing things that weren't his. And I suddenly discovered, well, wait, wait a minute, is this really true? Is this really part of my story? Or is it part of my father's story? Is it part of the story he grew up with? Or is it just an old legend that gets told in the context of something else? So here's the first point I want to make about our story this morning, the lengthy description of how Jesus appeared and how Mark just simply said it was another rumor that nobody paid much attention to. Some things are real, but they're not true. 
Some things are true, but they're not real. What in my story I just told you is true, but not real? Or what is real, but not really true? You think of the stories you tell yourself, the stories that keep you trapped in certain cycles, the stories that maybe family members you know stay stuck in certain cycles. We look at our, social, our society stuck in certain cycles and patterns. Are the stories that we're telling ourselves true, or are they real but not true? Some things that we experience are real but not true. Some are true and not real. I have a, a table in our, in our house that's an amazing, beautiful table in the back room, and it's made of solid uh, mahogany. We bought it at this place called the Heritage Center, American Heritage Center, down north of Waco. It's a beautiful Mennonite community. Some of you probably eaten at the restaurant there. Delightful farm-to-table kind of food. They also have a craft shop there. And if you go and you visit the furniture shop there, you'll see that the, sh the, the furniture they make is beautiful furniture, rocking chairs, tables, dressers. We bought our table in the back room there. It's, a, it's about a nine-foot table by three-and-a-half feet. It has a long bench, a solid wooden long bench. The table itself, I mean, it's two inches thick. The legs are solid and thick. The, the benches are solid. We've had it for 29, 30, no, we've had it for 40 years. And to this day, it still stands strong. And what's interesting, if you look at it, it's just a beautiful table. It shows the wares and signs of life. That, you know, of a family eating at the table at different occasions, everyday meals, special occasions, friends and visitors. You look at it, it's a beautiful table, solid and hard. Kids will sit on it at times. Kids will get up and play on it. It's got it like its own playground area. And yet it's also, if you look at where it came from, you realize that the young man who built the table had a book. And if you looked at the book, because this is what the, they did in their community, they still do it to this day, is they chronicle the beginning to end of the craft that they're doing, the, the product that they're making, this being their first craft. It's like their, their initiation, their rite of passage. And so they chronicle the tree. They take a picture of the tree. They take a picture of the tree cut down. They take a picture from the beginning, pictures all the way through the process to the final end of the project. And that's the story. But it's not the story. Because the story is also the table sitting in my house and all the family eating around it. And all of the times that we had arguments and all the times that we had laughter and all the times that there were just two of us and sometimes when there were 12 of us. The table carries so many stories. And yet it's not that. It's just a solid piece of wood. But it's not even that. If termites were around, it would be a feast for, for life. Right? It's not even that. If a physicist was looking at it, they would say, no, this is billions and billions of tiny, minuscule particles that are bouncing rapidly back and forth, but it just appears to be a stationary object to us. A table is so many things. This room is so many things. This space that we inhabit is so many things. I once asked my little granddaughter when she was three, we were drawing pictures, and I said, so I'm going to draw you a picture of a bird and show you how easy it is to draw a picture of a bird. And she'd drawn some grass, and then, of course, the space above the grass was just this kind of open space, and then she kind of put one little cloud, kind of little squiggly kind of cloud in the area. And I said, I'm going to show you how to draw a bird. And I did the little V-shaped kind of thing of a bird. And I said, you see the bird? And she said, that bird just flew right into the sky. Like it just poked itself into the sky. She saw something there I didn't see to begin with. To me, it was just an empty page. Grass below, clouds above. To her, that's the whole sky you just poked a hole in with the bird. We don't see things as they are. We often see them as we are. And sometimes what we think is true is actually not true. It might be real. We might be experiencing something as real, but it's not actually true. The way in which uh, Kierkegaard, who is the father of existentialism, one of my favorite theologian philosophers, Danish philosophers, theologians back in the late mid-1800s, he put it this way. He see, I see it all perfectly, he says. And there are two possible situations. One can either do this thing or that thing. Two situations. My honest opinion and my friendly advice, he said, is to do this. Do it or do not do it. You're going to regret it either way. He was an existentialist. And then he said later on, all existence makes me anxious. 
He was the father of psychology in the sense of existential psychology. William James based a lot of his ideas and understanding on Kierkegaard. The idea of subjectivity came up. That was first came up with Kierkegaard, speaking about subjective perspectives. It's interesting how these things influence, now, influence us now. So what is truth? I can tell you a story that feels real, feels like it probably happened. Did it really happen? You saw it. You experienced it. Was there ever really a guy at the, end of the, at the edge of the dock? Was there some aspect of that story that's true? When we hear news and we read news, what we get is we get an encapsulated, enculturated idea, which is almost always rooted in anxiety. Almost always rooted in anxiety. Most of the news that we read is almost always rooted in some kind of anxiety. You need this, you don't need this. Something that scares us, something that reminds us we're not complete. The one thing that's missing is the truth. It's still real, but it's not true. The story's not necessarily true. And so here's the second point I want to make. Sin, because I told you we're going to talk about sin. Sin is the failure to see the truth of our reality. That's it. Sin is the failure to see the truth of our reality. I know some of you grew up in different churches, different backgrounds. Some of you grew up Catholic. You can think of at least 84 sins, right? You can think of at least dozens and dozens of things you were told not to do. If you grew up in the Baptist church, we can list all the sins, you know, sex before marriage, dancing. Um, it depends on where you were, alcohol. Uh, I mean, you can think of any number of the sins we were not supposed to do. But I'm going to suggest to you that sin is not seeing the truth of our reality, our interbeing, our interconnectedness. So another way to spell that out is sin is the failure to see the present moment in terms of its redemptive possibilities that lead us on the path of shalom. Sin is what we fail to see, the redemptive possibilities in our moments that can lead us on the path of shalom. Because all we see are the people we hate, or the people that make us angry, or the people that drive us crazy, or the people that scare us. We don't see the truth of the moment. What we see isn't necessarily real, though. Now, I know you're going to think it's real. I mean, you're going to say, well, it is real. People get hurt. Violence is happening. People are greedy. I, yeah, absolutely. But the problem is they don't see it either. They're living out of a lie as well. And when we give people weapons on top of that, they're acting out of not insanity. The insanity is the people giving weapons to those people. Because people are upset. People are anxious. People are living with an existential ennui, increasingly so after the pandemic, right? But we'll just put weapons out there so that they can then act out their rage or their anxiety or their depression or their isolation on someone else. When all it really would have taken is probably a better way of intervening with counseling and such, but at the very least, don't put weapons out there for people to grab up and be angry with. If I'm going to lose my temper at my house, the first thing I have to remind myself is not to grab something and throw it. I used to do that. Would you have ever thought that was true of me? Don't, don't do it. Yeah, some of you are shaking your head. Yeah, I think I could see that. <laughs> the reality is, is that we have to learn that that's not the story, right? Even my own anger is not the story. My anger is a reaction to something I'm missing. The connective tissue that I'm missing being in touch with. The insanity isn't out there on the streets. The insanity is here and in our leadership and in our communities because we get caught up in these dysfunctional patterns and we haven't changed the story. So when I say that we're not paying attention or that we're missing the truth, we're all at fault too. But that doesn't mean we don't try to stop people from doing really stupid things like giving weapons to people who are angry and depressed. We need to stop some things before they happen. If somebody's drunk, we got to go out and stop them before they get on the highway. If we know that, right? We don't put them in a car and then say, good luck. 
We have to help the situation. But more than that, we have to help people realize that's not the story. That's not the truth. The truth is we're all interconnected. And fewer and fewer people are recognizing it. That's where we have to change the story. So I want to suggest something really quickly. I'm going to invite the band to come on up because I'm getting ready to do my point number three. I don't know about you, but I sometimes find myself caught in a pattern like this. I'll find it personally. I keep doing the same thing. I keep finding myself sitting there going like, how did I get back in this situation? I see it in our culture, in our society, in our communities, right? How do we fall back into this reality? we still got the same patterns happening all around us. Is anybody getting any insight into the situation? And so we find ourselves stuck in these patterns, and what happens is one of two things. If it's personally happening to you, I'm going to guess it's one of two things happens. If it happens to our community, one of two things happens. And that is we either react out of anger to it, or we react with shame. We react with shame with the idea, how did we get here again? How did I end up doing the same thing I keep doing? How did I fall back into the same pattern I keep falling back into? Or we get angry. How does the society keep falling into the same pattern? Why do they keep doing the same thing? And both of those fail to see something. That the story that we're telling when we see that is a false story. It's part of a shame cycle, part of an anger cycle, part of a narrative that says the American dream is all about you making your way in the world and making the best of things and finding your individual self and moving on forward, finding your, you know, I love it when we put these little signs, you know, these little improv, um, in, motivational things out on, on Facebook and such, that you can do it, you can be the best you can be. And I want to say, you need to realize it's not about you. And you know what will help? is if you make it about somebody else, you're going to feel a whole lot better. It just happens. The less I'm worried and thinking about me and the more I'm thinking about you, the better I realize I feel. Why would that be? Because I'm changing the narrative. And our culture is buried in a destructive narrative that it's been in for 200 years or more. And until we can change that story... Until we can say the reason why things appear and reveal like the sacred moments is because we stop thinking about ourselves and something else starts to surface up. Oh, yeah, that connective tissue. Oh, yeah, that sacredness at the ground of our very being. Oh, all of that's there. We just have to stop thinking it's about us. So when you get trapped in it by yourself for your own patterns, I'm going to recommend you do one thing. You remind yourself you're not that story. You step out of it. And you look at it from a distance, and you think, oh, this is just life. It's not I'm a shameful person. It's not I'm a stupid person. I keep getting trapped. You step out of that story, and you realize, oh, this is a story that has possibilities. And so each time I make this mistake, I'm just reminding myself of the next thing I need to do. What a great lesson. It's a great story. And if it's a boring story, you go like, well, I'm just going to change it. I'm going to do something different then. It's so much harder to do that in the society that we live in. You know why? Because we're so comfortable. We're so comfortable where we are, it's hard to step out of that and to try to tell a different story, to show up at council meetings all the time, to just show up and create a different narrative, say a different narrative, speak a different truth to the stories that people have been telling themselves all along. It's so hard to do that. It's easier to kind of freeze, flee, or fight. So, what brings me to point three then? Our stories that we tell and live miss the most important target of all, the idea that we are in fact interconnected. It's not about sin. It's about fear and belief. I'm sorry, about fear and control. And once we can realize that it's... The fastest way to let go of control is to simply give of ourselves in our moments. We begin to open up to a different story. So, last thing I want to say as the band gets ready to do this last song. Did the Emmaus story really happen? Is it true? Is it historical? 
Was Mark just saying, eh, there's all sorts of appearances of Jesus. We're not sure we believe any of them. If you read the ending of Mark, it kind of ends that way. If you read the other Gospels written about 30 years later, they have all sorts of endings. Things happen when things don't go the way you wanted them to. Stories change. My stories start to change because I realize I'm tired of telling that story. I think I'm going to tell a different story about my father. Maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I need to tell a different story about my own life instead of the brokenness I grew up in. It's not necessarily true, even though the experience is real. Did Emmaus happen? Have you ever experienced something where you found at that moment, wait, I didn't expect this to happen. I thought this was going to be bad. All of a sudden, I've experienced this joy and delight in this moment. And this person I thought I was going to have so much disagreement with, we have so much in common when we look past that. And then you step away and you go, that was a God moment. And then, right, they're all God moments. All it takes is to stop telling the story we've been telling and to open up to the story that is inviting us into redemptive possibilities. And when we do that, we find out that truth is everywhere. And sin is not. So, let's rise for our benediction. Let's stand. We have our benediction here. Thanks for sticking around. Um, the uh, last thing I want to say is that next week is Mother's Day. Hope you'll show back up for that. Have a great program next week with a special guest for our Mother's Day, although I'll still be here as well. And then, um, just this week, as you go out this week, I invite you, you know, we usually end our, with the benediction of our task is ended, our ideas have been rear-ended, rear and now something new is being mended. So, this week, I want you to go out this sounds weird when I say this. I want you to rear-end your own ideas. <laughs> that did sound weird, doesn't it? So what I want you to do is I want you to deconstruct your own idea of truth and, and what's really happening. Because you're going to read stuff, and it's going to immediately trigger that default reaction in you. I guarantee it, right? It's going to just happen. You hear it every Sunday in here, but it's still going to happen. 
So this week, instead of defaulting, ask yourself, what am I missing that's really true here, even though what I feel is real here isn't the truth? Is that possible that there's some other truth that's bigger than I'm missing? Amen. Go in peace.